0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, home of New York's craft cider. I love New York. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com.
2: Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief, with your hosts, me, Zara Tangora, and my mother, Bobby Comforto, who is not here with us for the intro today, but as always, here in spirit and definitely very much here for the episode today. Um, and before we get to today's episode, um, we want to take a moment to acknowledge uh, the passing of an incredibly important and amazing part of the New York City food community and the HRN family, uh, Anne Saxelby. Um, Anne started Saxelby Cheesemongers. Um, she was the original host of Cutting the Curd here in HRN and the wife of HRN founder Patrick Martins. Um, Anne was also a mother to three young children um, and just an all-around wonderful human being and someone that, you know, many 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 of us in the food community had either worked with or known of or interacted with in some way over the time in which she um had just been such an important part of the community. Um she was a pioneer in, you know, really championing um American made cheeses um at her shop, Saxelby Cheesemongers and yeah, just really an important member of the community. I can't really say that enough. Um, you know, it's hard to know what to say in times like these when somebody really tragically passes away. Um, you know, we can offer our thoughts and our best intentions and, uh, you know, all of the goodness that we can possibly give to her family and her dear friends. Um, and, you know, it, it feels like in saying that that's not enough, but I don't you know, at this time personally know what else to say. So on behalf of Bobby and I, um, we just want to offer our most sincere, sincere condolences, um, to Patrick and their children and their family and dear friends during this time. Um, HRN is putting together an audio tribute. So please check out, um, the website and their Instagram handle for instructions on how to, or information on how to participate in that if you'd like to. And, um, I feel like the one thing that we can take away in times like this is just um to try to remember to have that much more grace and understanding and kindness towards people. We never know what someone is going through or, you know, really just the, the real fragility of life. Um, and it's very sad that it has to take something this tragic to kind of remind us of that. But um, if we are to, you know, especially anyone listening who, you know, didn't know Anne or, um, you know, is trying to find the way to connect with a very sad story of of someone who wasn't in their actual personal world and sphere, you know, um, just at least being able to really take away that, that feeling of compassion towards others and appreciation for, you know, the time we have here. So moving on towards uh, today's episode, we have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Nelson Simone. Um, Nelson has just written a book uh, on the 30th anniversary of his near-death experience um, called Soul of the Hurricane, The Perfect Storm and an Accidental Sailor. Uh, Nelson comes on to talk with us about the uh, 1991, uh, inc- I mean, as the name implies, the perfect storm, which some of you may heard of. Um, it's, it's a very popular storm. I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, but a very well-known storm. Um, and as you'll hear him explain, um, it was a convergence of, a uh, nor nor'easter and a hurricane, um, in the Atlantic that created, uh, a, a really intense storm. And, uh, Nelson survived it. And what an incredible, uh, unbelievable unbelievable story of survival. Nelson is such a wonderful person and the way in which he tells his story um, is really just remarkable and so compelling. And as with many of our guests, we could have really spoke with Nelson for hours and hours. But we have the one hour and we really hope that you guys enjoy it. We have links in our show notes to some different, um, in-person events Nelson has coming up for the release of the book and, uh, when you can get it and how you can get it. And we really suggest you do because it is a wonderful read. We really both enjoyed it so much and we know you will too. So please enjoy our conversation with Nelson Simone. And, um, once again, our deepest condolences go out to Anne Saxelby's friends and family during this terrible time. Uh, you will be sorely missed. Um, Okay, thank you. Take care of yourselves and each other. So, we have a very special, very interesting, uh, amazing guest today with a really, really incredible survival story. And uh, without any further ado, we welcome to the show today Nelson Simone. Uh, Nelson has just written a book that is coming out on the 26th of October called Soul of the Hurricane The Perfect Storm and an Accidental Sailor. Nelson, hello.
3: Hi! Nice to be here. Nice
2: oh, to welcome. have you. It feels like we have been planning this for months because we have a
3: little bit, yes.
2: And the day has arrived. And man, yeah. what a what a fun, uh, exciting kind of conversation to have. You know, it's a deep conversation, and it's a conversation about trauma and grief and a survival story, but also really like you're just such a wonderful, like spirited human. And we have the great fortune of sitting down well, I got to sit down with you for a coffee and get to know you a little bit before this, and it just made me really excited about today's show.
3: Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to meet you, Bobby.
2: You too. Yeah. So, Nelson, your book, as the name implies, is about a hurricane, and not only Mm -hmm. any hurricane, but um, Hurricane Grace, which converged, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure I'm not going to get it perfectly with the Nor'easter, And another storm to create what we now historically know as the perfect storm, which happened in 1991, almost 30 years ago to the date where we're always speaking, a little shy of 30 years ago from today.
3: That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was well, the title kind of tells it. it's the the perfect storm and an accidental sailor because Mm -hmm. I ended up um, being part of a crew that was transporting this old ship, Anna Christina, the oldest continuously sailing vessel in the world So this beautiful old schooner and we were transporting it from Brooklyn to Bermuda and uh, there were nine of us and I didn't really want to go I one thing led to another and I ended up uh, mostly not wanting to lose face Uh, so I ended up on the ship with no experience no sailing experience at all.
4: How old were you at the time?
3: I was 32 wow. at the time. Mm. Uh, it was a young crew. The oldest member was 50. Uh, and everyone else was in their 20s.
2: Mm. Well, there is so much that I kind of want to unpack here, because first of all, just in terms of like, you know, that this is a show we talk about grief and, and loss and um I found so many parallels in your experience uh, in being a a a somewhat, you know, novice sailor to the parallels between um, grief and a storm. And there's a lot of things I kind of want to talk about there, but I just found that all to be very interesting. You know, and you're talking about, you know, the accidental sailor, I feel like folks who have experienced grief and trauma in any way can really kind of, I think, relate to that because it feels sometimes like you're being in, thrown into something you don't, aren't really prepared for. And I think like one of the great things I'm looking forward to, and i, I Bobby, I, I would assume you too, like in talking to you today is just kind of hearing about, you know, how that felt for you, like feeling just like, wow, I didn't even, this wasn't even my life's work. I didn't yeah. want to do this really, you know, and here mm-hmm. I am. And I guess how, how we cope. So I kind of want to start with a bit of like your background, which is interesting. You grew up, uh, you were born in La Paz, Bolivia, and then you and your family moved to Maryland, correct?
3: Right. Yeah. And that, that comes out in the book. So uh, in, in writing the book, you know, a lot of it is the actual story of the, of those four days really uh, Mm -hmm. that we were on, on the, in transport uh, a lot of it is the background and a lot of it is about my background. So there are these, I, I call them the hurricane vignettes. Mm. And there's these three little sections of growing up, each one connected to a di- different hurricane that I experienced as a younger p- person. Um, and so that it starts, the very first one is uh, when I was seven years old. Uh, and then there's one when I was 13 and one when I was 26. But they're really also... Besides, I mean, the hurricanes happened, but they're also a way of, of finding a way to tell my story and how I came to that moment right? Uh, and the things that brought me there. Uh, and I think the early part is really kind of an immigrant story of, of being taken from my country when I was three, what that meant to me and my family, and, and part of that grief and yeah. uh, what happens to a person when when that happens.
2: Well, what does happen to a friend? What did happen to you when that happened? What were some of the kind of long term traumatic effects of that, that like hadn't had that play into your life?
3: Well, you know, I think it was interesting researching the book because I got to talk to my mom Mm. and a bunch of other people. But in this context, uh, and there were things that, you know, after all these years, I still didn't know. So I knew that that we were in Bolivia. I knew that my parents came up to the States, but I didn't realize that she left us for a year. So at two years old, I lost my mom and my dad
4: mm.
3: for a year. Um, and when we finally came up with my grandmother, uh, I didn't know who my mom was. Like she, mm. she told me in talking about this later, she said, your grandmother was the mother you knew. Mm. And so I don't remember these things, but I do have to wonder, you know, what does it do to a child uh, yeah. to not recognize his mom. Uh, so I know there was a lot of sorrow there. And and, and you know, I, I know that there was a lot a lot of times in families we tell these things, these stories, as if they're they're funny or they're they're cute or something. But they talk about my brother and me crying seven hours straight. I mean, we cried the whole way on the plane. Mm-hmm. And so, again, you know, as an adult, it makes me think, well, what, what was I going through? What's this child going through? And yeah. sort of being wrenched from everything they knew. It's
4: a
2: very kind of intense trauma as a young child.
4: You know, there's that concept in trauma that two things. One is that we hold trauma in our body. So even if we're only three years old, when we have a trauma, or even younger, even an infant, you know, it's in our cells. And I've always also had that thought that, every age of us is inside of us. So it's like the three-year-old is still inside of all of us. And so we hold that traumatic part inside of us, whether we remember it or not in actual, you know, elements of the trauma.
3: Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, I'm curious to know about, when your family did come to Maryland, you know, I try to just, we try to find the little parts about food where we can on the show. Mm -hmm. And it's always interesting hearing how uh, families with different, you know, from different countries and with different backgrounds and different nationalities, like, what was the, what was it like um, coming to a different country? Was, were the Bolivian foods that maybe your parents had grown up with and the customs around food, like still strong, or did you guys try to kind of have, you know, an American table, like right. how did
3: that work? Well, it's funny you say that because my my grandmother was the cook, and mm-hmm. the kitchen was her domain. Uh, and so it turns out because my family, besides being Bolivian, were also Lebanese before mm-hmm. that, and um, the food I ate growing up, cooked by my grandmother, was always just my grandmother's food. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, so I didn't realize until later. That it was Lebanese food, it was uh, uh, Bolivian food, it was a mix of foods, uh, and she put a lot of thought and care uh, into her cooking. And it was interesting over time, the the sort of American piece took over where she really got into the convenience of American, you know, fast cooking shortcuts and things. And so I think as she got older... Um, You know, she kind of took those shortcuts. But in the beginning, it was, uh, you know, very much Lebanese food, the the food that at the time, you know, now it's Mediterranean cooking is very popular. But at the time uh, we had, I remember, uh, we call them niños envueltos, which are, uh, which literally means, you know, wrapped children. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I they're love actually, it. Uh, they're actually, you know, the stuffed grape leaves.
4: Oh, oh my so goodness. Good. Oh my gosh. Delicious. <laughs> uh, so is that uh, a Bolivian, wonderful, is that wonderful, wonderful. The, the, is that the Bolivian word to say that?
3: That's the Spanish Spanish. 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 We call Spanish. them Spanish. That's great. And uh, as far as the Bolivian food, there was, uh, I mean, she cooked all kinds of things. I remember one Christmas, you know, in many cultures and in Bolivian culture, you'll have the um, the pig, the roast pig, <laughs> <Yum>. <laughs> for Christmas, and uh, I had never. I, I wandered into. I think we had an extra refrigerator, and I wandered in, and here was this. It, it couldn't fit in one pot, mm. so it was split in half, with the head and the whole thing.
4: Oh, I love it! Kind of, I love kind that. Of free, yeah, you
3: love that. It <laughs> yeah. freaked me out. <laughs>
2: yeah, well, yeah, but it can be. It can be scary to see that if you're
3: not when you're little. For sure, of course. You just have this thing staring back at you of from course. the refrigerator.
2: I really, uh, there's a, I mean, there's, I loved your book. First of all, I mean, I guess I thought that goes without yeah. saying, but I should say it because I really did. I loved it. And, um, there was a couple of, I mean, parts that really stuck out to me, but I remember the story and I believe it was the first hurricane your family had been through, but it, it could have been the second, but I think it was the first where your parents were like trying to drive through it. Right. And yeah. then it
3: was the first, was that the first? That's the first. Right. That's when I was seven. yeah
2: Right. Um, and then a police officer had to, you know, (laughs) tell you guys to pull off the road. And I just think it's kind of like an, I don't know, it just was this interesting part of a book, which maybe was a small part for for me. It just kind of painted such a picture of, I don't know, just the fortitude of a family who's like, okay, well, we're just going to do this and, you know, like kind of get through this. And I kind of wondered how that, um, I don't know how that might've been ingrained in you years later when your own kind of traumatic hurricane experience happened of just like, you know, well, there's a storm coming, but we're not going <laughs> to necessarily, you know, we're just going to kind of get through it.
3: Well, when you say that it's it sort of, I, I think, uh, all those years later I got through it cause I didn't know any better. And I got yeah. on the ship cause I didn't know any better.
4: Yeah. And I think we
3: got through this cause we just didn't know any better. Right. right. We were completely, you know, one thing that stood out in talking to my mom about it was, uh, We didn't know what a hurricane was. We came from a landlocked country. And, um, you know, and that actually is the opening vignette of the book. And when we came down, we drove all the way, you know, over a thousand miles to Miami, from Maryland to Miami. Mm -hmm. And we got there. We thought we were going to have a nice holiday. We came down the first day and they were boarding up the hotel. And they said, you've got to leave. And so we just got in the car and started trying to make our way home before the hurricane hit.
2: Wow. Really intense. So I guess, you know, we should, we should jump into this incredible story um, because it is an incredible story. And, you know, I think I mentioned when we met that like we share, uh, we have a commonality around a survival, surviving a near death accident. And, you know, I've I've told my story so many times and sometimes it feels just like a story I tell. And I don't know Mm. if that feels that way to you at all. Like, does it ever feel like that you're disassociated from it, that it's almost, you've repeated it so many times, which is a good thing in the processing of it, but I don't know. How do you feel about that?
3: Um, I don't know. It's interesting just because I've been working on the book for so long and I've just been immersed in it for the last two or three years. Um, So I think in some ways I think it sort of became rote at one point, but mm-hmm. then I, there were times um, in the writing of the book that I felt things even more vividly. Mm. And I remember there's one passage uh, and I should say this grew out of a, um, a storytelling performance. So before there, there was the book, there was this storytelling that I would do mm. and in writing about it. And in my notes, I, I was keeping a journal just after the, the storm To try to get, when I was thinking about this and I wanted to remember things and I was telling about the experience of, you know, being on the deck and, and trying to prepare ourselves at this point for the rescue, because we weren't, we knew that, that we weren't going to make it. And so, um, and I remember specifically writing there. I I don't remember if I was afraid. And I think in the days after, uh, you know, how this goes. I was very numb and I was telling the story and I was trying to, to kind of process it, but, um, I really didn't remember. And, you know, almost 30 years later, as I was thinking about that moment and thinking about trying to remember whether I was afraid or not, I literally started shaking. I was sitting alone in my mm. family room and, and I should started shaking. And it's as if I was finally getting to feel all of it, you know, yeah. um, yeah. In, in, in the trying to, to tell about it.
4: I it, feel makes sense. it actually reminds me a lot of EMDR. When we do um, EMDR trauma work and somebody's retelling a story, they're reprocessing it. And so in reprocessing it, you go deep into places that had been hidden and protected because of the trauma. So that's really – it makes a lot of sense. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Zara. You no, no,
2: that's okay. I was just going to say yeah. – um, I feel like when you have a trauma experience like that, when something truly happens, like the worst, most unpredictable, kind of near really when you see death that closely, while the experience itself can go in and out of uh, waxing and waning intensity or realisticness or have like be closer or further away to your everyday life, like there is the realization that you've seen something that not a lot of other people have seen and you like can't unsee it, you know what I mean? And I think it can work if we do EMDR therapy, if we do kind of really, if we are lucky enough to be able to really process it, it can work for us mm-hmm. in terms of perspective, in terms of trying not to waste time, in terms of, you know, trying to help other people. And it can work against us and sometimes it does both, but there is like... Um, I think whenever unique things happen to people in life, it almost feels like being part of a club. And there is kind of like a club feeling to being having had a near-death experience. And like, you know, it's hard to explain to other people what it feels like. And yeah. maybe something in the telling of the book, I don't know how this feels to you, or telling of the story is like almost to explain, like, cause you can never truly explain it to someone else. Like they'll, people could be like, oh my God, or wow. Or, oh my God. Mm-hmm. But are you like, I wonder if it's just continuing to explain it to yourself,
3: you know? Yeah. I think that's a lot of it. And I think one thing, you know, in speaking with people who've been through near death experiences as we have. And, um, the one thing that, that feels different for me is, is that, um, that it took place over so long a time. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've been in, uh, I was in, uh, you know, a, a car accident with friends mm-hmm. once. And that is an amazing, like, you know, it's seconds. And yeah. But here, the, I mean, we were in trouble for more, the greater part of a day. It was really 30 hours that we were kind of f- facing it. Mm-hmm. And that to me is is one of the big parts of there was so much that went through my mind over the course of that time from resignation um, from, you know, at a certain point I, I, I tell in the book uh, because I was I was done. I was exhausted. Um, I, I didn't have a perspective of how are we doing because I knew so little. I was just following instructions from the captain and, and trying to help any way I could. And at a certain point, I was really, I was just done. And I, I i couldn't care about staying alive anymore, even though I wanted to. And so I remember thinking about my parents and uh, really thinking about how hard it would be on them. Um, and that kind of gave me my, my second will, you know, yeah. to, to keep trying. Yeah. Um, and I needed something.
2: Absolutely.
3: Because um, I could not I couldn't summon it in myself.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think a lot of times people say it's a typical thing to hear for folks to say, like, you know, my worst fear would be dying in a plane crash. Right. Because Mm -hmm. like you have that time between when you know something's going wrong and when you crash, but like your experience, I mean, that's so much time, 30 hours to kind of have to sit and reckon with the thought that like, you know, and all of those kind of Stages like we we now know that the you know stages of grief is not necessarily accurate and that it can be expanded on, uh, and it's more nuanced than that. But you know the standard stages of grief, you're like processing them probably over and over in such a short span of time, where normally people go through those stages of grief over like weeks and months and years and like I you know the the denial, the bargaining, the depression, mm. the anger. Is that did that feel?
3: All of it. I mean, I I do have to say one thing that that really helped me because early on, before we really hit the storm, I got really, really seasick. Mm. And, um, you know, and it it kind of took me by surprise because I had been doing so well. But then when the weather started getting rough um, and then we it's we weren't in trouble yet. We We couldn't tell we were in trouble, but but things were getting um, exciting, let's yeah. say, because I, I could tell in, in being with the experienced sailors, they were kind of jazzed up. They were excited <laughs> yeah. because they, you know, I say in the book, sailors love a storm. Like mm-hmm. no one will ever tell you a great story about a calm day. Right. You know, they'll always tell you about the worst storm they've ever been in. Yeah. And so once that happened, something kicked in and me the adrenaline or something. And I just, I mean, it, uh, the the seasickness just disappeared. Uh. Um, I someone was making this beef broth because we hadn't eaten, and I realized I hadn't eaten in over you know sort of twenty four hours. And uh, and I just remember sitting on the deck, and the captain was at the wheel, and the wind is whipping up and mm. it's just swirling. And I'm drinking this broth, and it is just exploding in my mouth. It is just wow the most exciting broth I've ever (laughs) had. Um, And then later, what helped me was that there ended up being someone worse off than I was. So uh, another guy got really sick and he was completely debilitated. And at a certain point, he realized that uh, he couldn't stand up. You know, he was so seasick and just drained that he... And so I think he realized that if it came down to it, he didn't know if he could save himself or not. And right. so the captain was always, he was amazing. You know, Joey, so, the captain, yeah. Yeah. Joey Gelband was just working everything. I mean, he was working the sales and the, you know, and he was all over the place and obviously trying to help each one of us both for ourselves, but also to, to contribute as much as we could. We needed all nine of us, you know? Yeah. So, um, so Langdon was sort of collapsed in his bunk and Joey got me and we went to get him. And he gave us a job, which was basically they had rigged the head, you know, the toilet. They had rigged it so that you could pump with a pump in the head and we would be pumping up water from the bilge. Wow. Now, I have to believe that we were pumping next to nothing. Yeah. But I think Joey just brilliantly knew that these guys need something to do. Right. they need somewhere to put their minds.
2: Right.
3: And so we were lying on, you know, the, the, the below deck and we're we're working this pump. And Joey said to Langdon, if you need to throw up, just throw up in the bilge because right. you're already right there. Right. and. Um, and that kind of gave me the strength and I remember we were pumping and I could feel our spirits sort of waning and uh, it occurred to me that it would be good to sing.
4: Mm. And
3: so, so I, and I, I was a big, big, big Bob Dylan fan. I knew all the old Dylan songs. And so I just started singing and, and got Langdon singing and the two of us oh, would just right. sing and sing and mm-hmm. sing. And, oh. uh, you know, uh, and I remember singing, uh, the, the times they are, are changing, there's that line, you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone. Wow. You know, and it occurred to us like the line and the moment and um, and we just, you know, laughed and screamed and, you know, pumped as hard as we could. And really that powerful. That got us through there. Yeah. Really
2: powerful. There was so many things that you wrote that just, I really, as I kind of mentioned at the top of the show, that really tied uh, your story to just the overall experience of loss and grief. And I just wanted to kind of mention a couple of them and read a couple of excerpts and lines Mm -hmm. from the book. But the first one that kind of really hit me, your book is, you know, the chapters are kind of very organized from like, you know, describing your young life, describing the ship, describing kind of leaving the port. And then, you know, I loved, I really attached to the part where you're kind of describing hurricanes in general, And like, I found them to be such a remarkable metaphor for grief. Um, You say in the book, hurricanes are amongst the most powerful, most destructive, most studied phenomena on earth. And yet they remain largely a mystery. And I mean, that to me also really explains the (laughs) death experience. You know what I mean? It is (laughs) like such a mystery and yet it is like so powerful, so destructive so studied, everyone's aware of it, and yet we kind of know nothing about it.
4: We have no control over it. Yeah, like <laughs> and
2: you know the mystery surrounding death—how to deal with it, how what happens afterwards. Everything is like. You know, I just I really attach them. And you kind of go on to say shortly after that, the, dev- the devastating storms of the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico have always loomed large in the lives of the native peoples of that region. For them, great storms are a part of the life cycles, defined, respected and adapted over millennia. And, you know, again, did I like that? you <laughs> did so beautiful. No. <laughs> That's
3: pretty good. Right? And, <laughs> very good. and um,
2: <laughs> you know, it just really made me think about how, you know going on from where you begin talking about the mystery of hurricanes or in this case, we can kind of relate it to death or or grieving. um, And how different cultures kind of choose to see the mysterious and destructive things that happen in our lives as either uh, things to, you know, hide from and push. I mean, obviously we all want to protect ourselves in in a storm and be as safe as we can, but, or to like accept this as part, as like a, wild like mystical phenomenon and respect it and kind of pay homage to it and like embrace it as part of the life cycle which I thought was just very beautiful I really loved mm. that okay yeah. did, did you feel I mean actually I guess this is a question I hadn't yet thought about but in terms of like you know growing up in Bolivia and then coming to America is there a difference in the attitude towards death and dying and grieving um in Bolivian culture versus American culture that you've noticed or in your own family, for that
3: matter. Interesting question. I mean, I do think in, in thinking about the native people of Bolivia, like, you know, the, the sort of early cultures of all our lands, uh, they do have a different perspective. I mean, I do think they felt they were more connected to mm. the land and the earth and, and uh, you know, Mama Pacha, uh, Mother Earth. And... Um, I don't know. I just think that that they have a clearer idea of, of those cycles and and that the, the hurricanes were saying something to them. Mm-hmm. And when we start to try to understand those, I, I spoke to um, uh, this amazing scientist um, who's one of the uh, um, the top uh, authorities on hurricanes. And he he's the one who told me, I mean, he studied hurricanes all his life and he mm-hmm. still doesn't really understand them. Mm. But as near as we can tell that they, they do something in terms of keeping the earth regulated and keeping uh, the, the temperature of the earth, uh, the seasons. I mm. mean, they're really key because they move trillions of gallons of water and they, they move heat. They disperse heat, mm. you know? And so for many years, the number of hurricanes and of of these kinds of storms around the world was about 90 every single year. And that, and they didn't understand why that really never varies because the conditions for hurricanes exist a lot. And what we're seeing now is, you know, last year was a record setter. This year's another record setter. And so again, we're seeing the imbalance that, that we have caused.
2: Right. Of course. And Um, the earth trying to regulate itself. Right, like right, the- and
3: kind of out of control. Yeah. Like that's why we're having so many more hurricanes. Is that it's that balance has been of hit. Of course. Yeah. But I do want to say, since you brought up the, the chapter on, on hurricanes, uh, just to mention that uh, you know I was part of a group that went to uh, to New Orleans. You know, nine months after Katrina, mm. um, and talk about being part of a larger club. I mean, to be with. I met one after another, after another person who had stared death Mm. in the, in the face, you know, and that city had, Mm uh, so it was just, it was humbling and remarkable, you know, to, to see what these, the the resilience of these people.
2: Totally. And what a, what a wonderful thing to do with the empathy that you cultivated from your own experience to go and kind of connect and, with folks down in uh, New Orleans yeah. over Katrina, which was obviously such a horrible tragedy, yeah. you know? Yeah, um, Yeah. I just, I really, you know, the parallels uh, between between death and, and hurricanes really just struck me, and even what you were just kind of saying about uh, great storms needing to kind of regulate Earth, regulate the tone of things, you know, I just... I thought it was incredible. You go on to say in the book, hurricanes create chaos. They devastate human populations, taking lives and destroying property. They decimate coastlines. They sink ships. But the phenomenon itself is the opposite of chaos. In fact, a hurricane is a supremely ordered system. It is an order that arises out of disequilibrium out of elements that are thrown out of balance that try to rebalance themselves by moving, converging and rearranging themselves into new novel relationships, which is just an incredible way to think about our environment and about our world Mm. and the way that nature works to kind of just keep itself on course. And also again, just like, man, how like, Life, how life does that? How there, you know what I mean? Like it seems chaotic right. when you are going through a trauma. It seems so chaotic when you lose somebody or when you yourself become lost somehow. But really, like there is this odd, ethereal, kind of like ephemeral order to things. You know, right? Yeah, yeah. I just really thought that was a beautiful passage.
3: And I, I, I do think too, Bobby. Did you want to see them? Oh, no, no. Um, I don't know. I think that we're going through so much with the climate crisis and um, and I just keep having this thought and it's not original with me, but that the you know, the the earth doesn't care. Like the larger earth will if we're not here anymore, it will repair itself eventually. Um, And, you know, and we keep talking about natural disasters, but all these, you know, I write in the book, uh, if a hurricane uh, a cross is a deserted island, that's not a disaster. It's just weather. right? You know, it's only when, when people are on the scene and we, we yeah. keep doing things. I mean, you know, New Orleans, I love it. I love New Orleans as a place, but it is a huge act of hubris. You yeah. know, it, it it's just asking for it, it <laughs> to have people living in, right. in that place. it's so below sea know, level and on the coast. Below sea level, and they've devastated the uh, – protective vegetation, yeah, you know, right. all of that stuff.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's an incredible, it is an incredible thing to encounter nature, you know, and mm. just kind of feel it, how much it, like, I, kind of just like what you said, how much it doesn't care about us. I think it reminds as devastating as the effects can be and as traumatizing and horrible as it is and, when people lose lives and lose home and stuff like that. I mean, there is just the earth is in control of us right. and not the opposite. And it's humbling and very scary to find out when that happens. And, you know, you would think that that would be enough to try to <laughs> get folks to get on the right page about, you know, protecting the environment and trying to have it work more with us rather than against right. us. But apparently. Um, I actually have a
3: I have a question for Bobby um, that, What's your experience of, of people trying to understand the trauma they've been through? Like, how, what's the process of understanding the things we've been through?
4: Well, that's a, it's a very good question. And I think ultimately it comes down to being able to accept what we can't control. Because that's what, it, bottom line, I'm giving you the end of the story, just end of the beginning, you know. So it's that process of trying to accept what we can't control. And like Zara mentioned, the stages of grief that Elizabeth Kubler-Russ talked about were about that. You know, there's a denial. We can't believe it's true. And there's a rage that we we want to control it. You know, we, we usually can control things in our life. And there's a despair, you know, of the losses when we start to anticipate what this trauma is going to mean to us. But ultimately, in the end, we have to accept what we can't control. And I often use the metaphor of hurricanes and earthquakes, you know, to help people, you know, really face it, you know, the definition of grief really is accepting the reality of the loss.
1: So accepting
4: the reality. So every time it hits us, every time it's, I can't believe this is true. I can't believe it's grief. And, um, as we come to accept it, we can turn more corners. So I'm so curious about when you started to feel when you were on the ship and this was happening to you, when did you experience, you know, fear and grief and all the things that we're talking about? You mentioned the first day, the 30 hours, In that moment,
3: you mean, during the experience?
4: Yeah. Tell me more. Tell us more about that.
3: Well, I think that, um, let's see. All right. My experience was I, I feel like I was feeling a lot early on. And then at a certain point, um, you're just really compartmentalizing things and really just trying to do the next task. Um, and I remember one thing that was very vivid to me, because at a certain point, things got bad enough that Joey decided that only the most experienced sailors would be on deck. So that was about four of them, I think. And so they were they were steering the ship. They were trying to figure out where to go. And so they were the ones dealing with, uh, you know, I, I witnessed those waves and at the beginning, mm-hmm. the enormous waves and the and the seas um, and it was very exhilarating. I mean, I think I was terrified, but I could really feel it too. And, and in the book, I talk about this this young guy. I think he was 21 at the time, maybe 19, and his name was Damien Sailors. Talk mm-hmm. like about a perfect name, <laughs> <right>? so, <laughs> And he he's this surfer dude. He's a, he grew up he grew up <laughs> in Hawaii, um, and I think his mom they were like hippies, so they were living up in the mountains and they were hunting wild boar and living off the land. And wow. so he decided to become a sailor and he was a surfer. And I remember at one point uh, that I was there, a lot of the, my time spent on deck toward the end was dealing with this one uh, gasoline pump because uh, a big part of the story is that our pumps weren't working properly to keep the water off, the, you know, out of the ship. And so this one pump, we were really trying to keep it going. And I was at the pump and Damien is at the uh, at the helm and the ship is is, you know, teetering back and forth. And he had this look on his face and he was he was surfing. I mean, long story short is he was surfing the ship Wow. <laughs> um, because his legs, he was just doing that thing, that oh balance thing that surfers do. And he just had this look of complete bliss on his face. Wow. You know, and I talked to him afterwards and he, you know, we each had a very different experience, everyone on the ship. I mean, I think we were all dealing with the danger and, and uh, you know, the, the things that were coming up in our own way. And for him, that was it. I mean, that was like all of it. Now, interestingly, <laughs> in doing the interview, because I'm, I'm saying to myself, I'm like, come on, man. You, you, this, Come on. Yeah. Now, Damien was not the most self-reflective person. I'm overly self-reflective. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm always trying to figure things out. Totally. But Damien, so in interviewing him all these years later... You know, I got him talking, and I said, "Well, what was it like for you afterward?" And I said, "You know, was it hard after? Did you have any kind of difficulty?" He said, "No, it was fine." And then Mm -hmm. I kept him talking, and he went back to sailing. Uh, He was sailing professionally, and he was up in Alaska, you know, on some kind of fishing boat or something. And he was in a bar, and he had just gone to sea, you know, in, in around. Nineteen ninety nine. You no, know, somewhere in the late nineties, the film came out, The Perfect Storm, mm-hmm. where they recreated, and I went, and I was like, "Oh my God, what a!" It really brought up a lot. Well, I bet. But for Damien, he saw the film. He had to walk out of the middle of it, and he went to a bar, and he wouldn't tell me what happened. I, I imagine he he got into some fights because yeah. he ended up in jail, basically. Wow. And. It's because the film was too much for him.
1: Yeah.
3: And so that, for me, was like, okay, that made
4: sense. Yeah, To yeah. bring it around to what we were talking about before, we were talking about processed and unprocessed feelings and of trauma. When they're unprocessed, that's kind of what happens. It becomes a big, dark, black hole that you fall into, and other things can trigger it. And then all of a sudden, you're back in the dark hole.
3: Right. Right. So, so yeah. that was interesting. To me. It's, yeah.
4: it's very interesting. So, I mean...
2: I, you, there's so many things in the book that I would love to just read, but, um, I want to just kind of mention this like last quote. And then I know there's an excerpt that you would like to read for us, which I would love it if you would do that. But, um, you say that a sinking ship is like an hourglass in reverse. Your time is marked not by falling sand, but by rising water. Again, an incredible, realistic metaphor for what you went through personally, but also really just for what it feels like to be grieving as well. You know what I mean? Because it is almost like the tide coming up on you rather than it go. You know what I mean? Than time going away. Can you just talk about a little bit, expand on that a little bit for us? Well, I mean,
3: literally, you know, because we were below deck, um, we could feel the water rising and we, we could mark it by how far. So it was at our ankles and it's at our calves and it's up around our knees. Mm-hmm. And so you're trying to uh, both keep the panic from rising in you and you're trying to keep functioning and doing your job. Um, but the, yeah, it's sort of that passage of time. Uh, how, how high will that water get before um, you're either out of this or you're able to to do something about it you know uh you're really just trying to to keep going at that point
4: yeah you know, and also yeah. in trauma we can't help but have the negative image so you can't help but seeing it rise higher and higher you, yeah. you know you don't get the sense okay soon it will stop right it's definitely it's, it that like it's going, never going to get worse stop. and worse
2: for for you and and the rest of the crew of the Anna Christina, it did stop, and you guys had a harrowing, almost you know impossible rescue from the mm. Coast Guard, correct, in their helicopters and. Uh, one had to turn around because of low fuel and then you eventually were rescued by one helicopter who kept getting, I mean, you could tell us better than I can, but I'm just remembering it because it's so in my mind. It's such a, yeah. when I was reading this part, the rescue part of the book, my heart was racing. I was reading it as fast okay. as I possibly could. I was like <laughs> ripping through the pages. Like, what like, Um, you know, not to sensationalize your trauma at all, but really it was mm-hmm. the way you were able to tell the story made it very, uh, very captivating. And, um, so you guys were eventually rescued and everyone on the ship made it off with their lives,
4: correct?
3: Yeah. I mean, one of the big things for, for me, that was a great pleasure of writing the book was to get to, to track these people down. Mm. And so I tracked down six of my fellow crew, crew members. I tracked down the, the, the pilot of the helicopter mm. that rescued us. Um, and I loved hearing his story. I loved hearing uh, his perspective, you know, um, as someone who had done over 500 rescues in his career at that point, point. Um, and he uh, won the Distinguished Cross for for his role in the rescue. It's one of the highest honors that mm. that uh, you know someone in his position could receive. Um, and again, it was interesting. You know, as for someone in his position who'd been through that so many times and said that, you know, nothing came close, I said, How did this res- rescue compare to your other? He says, Nothing came close. And um, he's a very religious man and he talked about the hand of God. Like he said, There's no way I could fly that well. You know, there's no wow. way that I could have just the right crew, that every single person was exactly the person they needed to be. Mm-hmm um and for him there was another, other just a greater power um you know at work there mm-hmm. um and interestingly so you know here's a professional here's a man who's who's been through this does this for a living um but he came back and he told me that you know that he got very sick afterward that he they almost told him to stop flying you know they told him that he needed to stop flying wow but he refused um And so I, I don't know exactly how that's all connected to right. this particular experience, but I know it was an experience that really, you know, was bigger than anything he'd been through and took him to, to another place.
2: Incredible. You know. Incredible. Nelson, would you be kind enough to read us an excerpt from Soul of the Hurricane?
3: I could. I'll read you and see.
2: That'd be great. I really, folks can't recommend this book enough, honestly. And I'm going to definitely say that again before <laughs> you get off, but really this is a fantastically written. It's so captivating. It's so informative, actually. Also just about not only hurricanes, but sailing and shipbuilding. And really, I just was very taken by it. It was wonderful.
4: And from a therapeutic perspective, what a great way to process wow, the thing that you. happened to you yeah, like to write yeah. and to spend three years, yeah. you know, diving in. That's incredible.
3: Um, so actually, uh, th- this takes us back to the first vignette uh, at the beginning of the book. And we talked a little bit about, um, you know, how uh, my family, I, I write early in the book that this was kind of our attempt to to be a family because we had spent so much time apart. Um, and so my mom decided we should go to Miami because she'd been there once and we didn't have any money, but we were going anyways. And we go a thousand miles, we get down there. And so this picks up once we're at the hotel. The next day, we came downstairs ready for a day at the beach, only to find the staff boarding up the hotel windows. A hurricane was coming, they said, and we had to leave. I wasn't sure what a hurricane was, but this didn't seem the right time to ask. The beach was empty and the police were directing a long line of cars away from the hotel. Our vacation, it seemed, was over. Papi decided we would drive straight home. We started out. Looking out the back of the car, I could see dark swirly clouds in the distance and everything around us had a strange gray tint. The air had that quality it does just before a storm, the feeling that something is about to happen. Later I learned this is because of the falling pressure that accompanies a hurricane. Inside the car, everything felt right. My father was at the wheel, my mother beside him. Rob and I knelt on the back seat looking back at where we had been, waiting. When I remember this day, I picture my dear mother, a woman who has lived so much of her life with a heavy heart, for whom happiness has always seemed as far off as heat lightning in the distance. I see her in this moment, a young woman of 26, not so far past her own childhood, alone with her two boys and her husband. Laughing, she seems to be enjoying our unexpected adventure. She is oblivious to the danger. I had never heard of a hurricane, mommy told me later, much less seen one. In Bolivia, we lived in little towns with a river or a pond, so we had nothing to compare it to. Soon the rain began. With every mile we drove, the rain got harder, the skies darker. My father drove slower and slower until you could have trotted beside us and kept up. Rob and I were restless, so Mommy entertained us the best way she knew how, by telling us scary stories. Now every raindrop brought a new monster, every lightning bolt revealed a new menace. Looking back, it does seem an odd way to calm young boys in a potentially dangerous situation, but it worked. Today I love a good fright, and even at that early age I was drawn to these stories, as if by picturing the bad things out there beyond our windows, we could feel safer somehow. Mm,
2: beautiful. beautiful. That is really a beautiful memory of your family and the first kind, those kinds of first experiences. And you're such a really beautiful writer. Thank you for sharing that. Really us. good images, yes. Beautiful imagery um nelson near the end of each show we ask each of our guests and i cannot believe it is the end of the show because i can sit and talk to you (laughs) for another three hours um but we ask everyone the same question and uh, i'm really interested to hear your perspective on this question which is if you could have if you could have given some advice to your younger self at the beginning of this grieving experience at the beginning of this trauma, wherever that feels like for you, whatever that place is that you're picturing yourself that could use advice from your older, wiser self, what would that be?
3: Hmm. Well, this may seem odd, but it it would be to, um, have done what I knew I needed to, which was not go, Mm. you know, that a lot of the story was really about, um, uh, saving face. And a lot of that was tied up, I think, in my immigrant experience of having to accommodate everyone around me. And so even though I didn't really want to go, I once I got in, uh, it was too hard to back out. Yeah. Um, so it's tricky because it's an experience I would never wish on anyone, but I wouldn't give it up for anything. Um, but I think as a person, it would have been um, you know, the, the, the most mature kind of the largest part of me to actually have been big enough to say, no, I really don't want to go.
2: Mm, that's very interesting. And really, yeah, that is a really interesting bit of advice and a really great answer and a really different answer to the question. And I really, I really like it. You know,
4: I also wanted to say something Sarah, that so much of this is about dualities. You've been talking about that, you know, about um, wanting to go and knowing you shouldn't go. Right. Of course. And just the, just <laughs> of, the dualities and it being an experience that you, you know, want to forget and will always remember. And just all those things. Oh, I love that, Bobby. Want to yeah.
2: forget and always remember. Yeah. That's good. Right. Because, yeah.
4: And, and, and also the duality of fear and excitement being so close to each right. other, just mm-hmm. that they're so opposite,
3: but so close to each other. Well, I have to say too, that, um, I, I, I've, I've been through so much. I've had lots of interesting experiences in my life and, and adventures and, but I'm not someone who seeks them out. I, I, I tell people that, uh, if, 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 if someone told me that it was my civic duty to never get out of bed, <laughs> then I'd be down with that. Cause I always feel like, eh, I think I'll just not get out of bed. So I, uh, these experiences I have, I really have to force myself to say yes. Yeah you know uh so there's kind of that side of it too
4: yeah that's so interesting another thing zara was bringing up before at the end of our show we like well, i was going to imagine... gonna switch the question though today <laughs> Oh,
3: okay. <'Cause> I, think <laughs> oh, and, and I, I want to remind you about duende before we Oh leave. yes
2: of course please to actually like let's go let's talk about duende before we even go to our last meal question because okay well it's not last meal that was a okay. great. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so right. last meal. It's a last a question <laughs> about a meal. Um, but yeah, do, can you when we first spoke, when we met for coffee, you were telling me about duende and then you mentioned uh, right. duende in the book and I at the at the top of the show I was like, Nelson, don't forget to talk about duende. Yeah. So yeah, can you mention duende to us? Uh,
3: so, um when I was trying to figure out my experience, this was in the in the literally in the days after I was reading things, I was just trying to find some way to to put words to what I had been through. And I came upon this concept of duende. And duende apparently literally means, in in a Spanish slang of some kind, uh, uh, sort of a a wood nymph. It's like a little, almost like a leprechaun character. But the way it's used, um, at least where I read about it, was in relation to uh, flamenco and flamenco dancing and flamenco singers. And if you've seen that, it's very emotional. It's very, it goes, it comes from such a deep place in both the singer and the dancers. And I read a quote from a a flamenco dancer saying that, that for her, duende means that you have to go to the very, very edge and you have to look over and you have to face death and you, and you have to, have that experience in order to dance the way she does that that's she is dancing with duende
4: oh, i love it you know? that's so and beautiful. i love that concept and it's i think so it's beautiful.
3: so true
4: it really is whoa thank you for adding that
2: on that was i know i know it's really it's really amazing Um, so what we were both kind of hinting at is that the other thing we asked everyone at the end of the show, which is if we could all share a meal together, you know, what would we bring? But I was thinking today to throw a wrench in our normal question, because this is an episode about survival, um, and I know myself, whether I, whether it has been in surviving a near-death accident or whether it's surviving heartbreak, or it's surviving things that you didn't think you would be able to come outside of. For instance, when I'm heartbroken, I can't imagine eating. I stop eating, like I can't do it. I put food in my mouth and it doesn't work. And sometimes I I remember what that thing is that finally I can eat when I feel like I came out of the other side, you know? And I was wondering if maybe we all could talk about what our thing that either we have eaten when we come out the other side or we can picture being the comfort when we come out the other side of an insurmountable, seemingly insurmountable experience. Okay. I'll start. Okay. (laughs) For me, it (laughs) is bread and butter. It feels like the most kind of simple gentlest thing to just kind of put in my stomach that like my stomach wants to feel, you know, it feels really comforting and rich. I love bread and butter. And often when I do go through kind of Uh, you know, heartbreak, a trauma, a loss, like the first thing I can think of actually eating after the, you know, emotional storm clears is bread and butter.
3: How about you, Bobby?
4: Well, it's pretty close. Um, I actually, having had um, chronic illness for many years, there were many moments where I, it felt like after the storm. And so I would always go to um, rye bread toasted with butter with a scrambled egg on top.
2: Oh, the addition of a scrambled egg. Mm. A really
4: soft, wonderfully, perfectly made Mm. scrambled egg. Nice. And what about
2: for you, Nelson?
3: (laughs) Well, the first thing that came to me, there is a dish. It's called Chairo. And it's kind of a, it's a Bolivian stew. It's very rich. I mean, it's very hearty, very warming. And my grandmother would make it, it, it's hard to make. So my grandmother would make it once a year on my grandfather's birthday. Wow. And after he died, she would make it on my birthday. Oh. So to me, both the dish is so nurturing, uh, but also the memories it brings up and the memories of people I love so much. That's
4: um, beautiful. What is it made of?
3: Um, it's got, it's, it's a very, It's it's got, you know, I, I don't know if you know in Bolivian culture, especially in the Andes, it's very potato based. Mm-hmm. So it's got like three different kinds of potatoes. Mm. It's got... Uh, there's this um, uh, it's, uh, this beef jerky that they make out in the countryside. Yeah. It's called charque, where they salt the beef down. Mm. So it's very hard to make because you have to get all these of different course. ingredients.
2: Yeah. Sounds yeah. delicious. Sounds abs. there's – Literally, aside from bread and butter, nothing I love more in this world than a stew.
4: I like, know. A right.
2: stew. It's so good. <laughs> like, it's everything.
3: We'll, we'll share one when it gets now that it's, when it gets cold. I would
2: love that. That would be really great, Nelson. Nelson, just uh, to remind folks, I know you have a couple of events coming up for the book here in Brooklyn. Can you just tell yes. people, remind us when the book comes out, how we can get it and how we can follow you and et cetera, et cetera. Sure,
3: sure. Sure. Um, Let's see. The book comes out on uh, October 26th, which is a Tuesday. Um, my, my publisher tells me that for some reason, books always come out on Tuesdays. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even know why. But it's <laughs> Tuesday, October 26th. Uh, we're having a book launch party that night at the Royal Palms Shuffleboard Club right. in wonderful Gowanus. Um, and if you've never been to, to the club, it's an amaz- it's my second home. I love it. And it's really it's a cool. fun place. So we'll be there and we'll put a, uh, a link um, on the site to, to register for that. It's free. And, sure. Yeah. And uh, so that's on the 26th. On the 28th, I'll be in conversation with uh, Amy Eddings, who's a wonderful friend and journalist. Used to be on WNYC. Um, and that's an event sponsored by my favorite independent bookstore, the Greenlight Bookstore. Awesome. So that's uh, an online event. And I, as we were talking, it it uh, I love it because this was uh, an amazing conversation. Um, and I love that you have the themes that you do. And this will be a very different kind of conversation. So cool. anyone who is listening to us here would also get a lot more, a lot out of that right. as well. So cool. that's on the 28th. And we'll put both those links up. Nice. And, um, the one other thing I'll say is if you want to find me on Facebook... Um, I'm doing, uh, 30 pictures in 30 days, um, in the lead up to the launch. Uh, and it's been a lot of fun and there's a picture about the process, uh, or about something to do with the book or the, the experience and a little story uh, about each of those.
2: Amazing. Well, we really can't, we can't tell you guys enough how much we recommend getting this book hopefully you can go to one of your uh, local bookstores and grab it uh, preferably but um anyway you can get it uh, I recommend you do and Nelson I remember you saying the other day we're recording an audiobook version correct
3: yes I finished that that's awesome uh, that'll be coming out too
2: cool I have recently gotten very into audiobooks so I
4: think I might even
2: (laughs) read the book through listening to it just because it just I don't know digests in a different way
4: we're Good. the most fortunate to have had your first interview. So cool. Yes. Really. Nice thank you so much. It was like such so a much. gift.
2: And thank you for writing the book. And thank you very much for joining us today, Nelson. And we will definitely see you soon.
3: Thank you both. Okay.
1: Bye-bye. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges, co-op-run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. Plus, you can't beat the beauty of Cayuga Lake, the largest of the Finger Lakes. Beyond 150 waterfalls and some of the region's best hiking trails, Ithaca is cider. The area is well-known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. You can hear from the region's cider makers directly on HRN's series Hardcore. There's something really special about Ithaca's climate for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. Let Visit Ithaca help you plan your next trip to this hub of food, drink, culture, and agritourism. Home of New York's craft Cider, I love New York. Get started at visitithaca.com.
2: Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at Processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you for our freshest content. Subscribe to our newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. network.org connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer and more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member.
4: Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.